I invite you now to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 17, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 21, which is our text today for our sermon. Ezekiel 17, verses 11 through 21. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Know ye not what these things mean? Tell them. Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem, and hath taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. And hath taken of the king's seed, and made a covenant with him, and hath taken an oath of him. He hath also taken the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth that made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he break, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons, seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when lo, he had given his hand and hath done all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore saith the Lord God, as I live, surely mine oath that he hath despised and my covenant that he hath broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head, and I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he hath trespassed against me. And all his fugitives, with all his bands, shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. And ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. At the outset of today's sermon, let me remind you of the general course that we are pursuing in the present series on National Covenanting. There are two specific parts in this series. In the first part, which is where we presently find ourselves, we are focusing our attention on the biblical case for National Covenanting, not only within the nation of Israel, but also within Gentile nations as well. And in the second part, which we shall, God willing, consider more specifically uh, in the future, we will be looking at the Solemn League and Covenant as a national covenant made with God that perpetually binds the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and all their posterity. This we shall do with the prayer that God may drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our own covenant breaking, to seek his forgiveness for this grievous sin against the Lord our God, and to own anew the sacred covenant with God that our faithful forefathers engaged for themselves and for us their posterity. And as we prepare to hear God's word today, 
the following uh, questions face us. Can a tyrant, that is, an unlawful civil magistrate, within a nation that is bound by a lawful national covenant, engage himself in any civil agreements to which he is yet morally bound to keep? Or does his tyranny and covenant-breaking render all civil agreements, covenants, and contracts that he should make thereafter null and void? Does that nation ruled by a tyrant civilly cease to exist as a moral person from the from the point that a tyrant begins to rule because nothing done civilly within that nation has been transacted by a lawful civil magistrate? You may be asking, what do these questions have to do with national covenanting and the perpetual obligation of national covenants? Well, let me state briefly that if it can be proven from Scripture that all the civil agreements that an unlawful civil magistrate or a tyrant makes are null and void, then the nation itself essentially ceases to exist as a nation. And members cannot therefore be added to or subtracted from that which does not civilly exist as a nation. Whether individual members, whether territories, whether dominions, whether colonies, if it doesn't exist, nothing can be added to it. And if such a covenanted nation cannot add new members to it due to a covenant-breaking and unlawful civil government, then there can be no perpetual obligation of a lawful national covenant to that nation. It can't be perpetual. It basically ceases when that civil magistrate becomes a tyrant. And it can't be a lawful civil a lawful national covenant cannot continue to any new posterity, as we've said, as well. If, in fact, it ceases to exist civilly. <clears throat> Dear ones, the implications of this point that we are considering today <clears throat> cannot be overemphasized. It is a very significant issue that we discuss and consider this Lord's Day. Not only with regard to the Solemn League and Covenant, which we'll look at more carefully and clearly uh, in the future, God willing, but with regard to the text of Scripture that is before us and many other texts of Scripture that we could enumerate as to many tyrants found in the Scripture. Uh, and yet, as we shall see from this one example, tyranny does not in and of itself cause a nation to civilly cease to exist. That, that those covenants, agreements, and contracts, charters that are enacted even by unlawful civil magistrates, if they are agreeable to the word of God, they do continue, they do bind the magistrate to fulfill them, and they do bind the people as well. Within our text, we have this main point that I want to, to make clear. Civil covenants made by tyrants within a covenanted nation are not null and void. Civil covenants made by tyrants within a covenanted nation are not null and void. And, again, I refer you to the passage of Scripture which we have read at the beginning of the sermon, Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 11 through 21, which we will uh, look at more closely as we work our way through the sermon today. <clears throat> but let me say this at the outset. <clears throat> Within our text, 
I submit we have a biblical example of a tyrant within a covenanted nation who made a lawful civil and national covenant which the tyrant is yet obligated to keep. We will, God willing, over the course of the sermon, demonstrate from the scripture that such is the case. Before looking more closely at our text, we need to establish from God's word what is a lawful civil magistrate and what is an unlawful civil magistrate or tyrant. For without those scriptural principles, we cannot know whether Zedekiah, uh, which is referred to in Ezekiel 17, he's the king of Judah that's referred to there, whether Zedekiah was a tyrant or not. So let us first ask the question and seek to answer, what is a lawful civil magistrate? According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 13.4, lawful civil government is, quote, the minister of God to thee for good. Lawful civil government serves God according to his moral law. It is God's servant. It is God's judge. It vindicates the moral law of God. It executes the moral law of God. It brings vengeance against those who, within the nation, do not obey, do not keep, do not follow the moral law of God or a lawful national covenant. The good, when it says in Romans 13.4 that the, the, that the lawful civil government is the minister of God to thee for good, the good which lawful civil government administers on behalf of its subjects must be measured not according to the standards of man, but rather according to the standards of God's moral law, which in Romans 7.12 is called good. God's moral law is good and holy, righteous and spiritual. It is good. So it's according to that standard of goodness, God's moral law, that we are to judge whether a magistrate is indeed a minister of God to thee for good. Dear ones, if civil government does not serve this end, then according to Paul, it is not the divine and lawful ordinance of civil government. For the throne, God says, is established by righteousness in Proverbs 16.12. And this is especially true, we can indicate, we can substantiate, this is especially true within a covenanted nation, as was the case of the, for the kingdom of Judah. As a minister of God to thee for good, the scripture gives two means by which one becomes a lawful civil magistrate. First, is by way of institution, for he must meet the qualifications for civil government as found in God's moral law. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, someone who does not fulfill this standard is not one who is a minister to thee for good, is not a lawful magistrate. It says in Exodus 18.21, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read concerning those whom the 
people of Israel would appoint as kings over them, we read these words. And it shall be when he, that is the king, sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book of that which is before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And then finally, just to read for you what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, by way of institution meeting the qualifications of a lawful magistrate, we read, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so these qualifications that he should fear God, that he should be one who upholds the, the word of God, that he would carry out vengeance against the evildoer, which would be defined by those uh, in the way of those who violate God's uh, uh, moral commandments and God's law. So, in essence, what we're saying here is that a lawful magistrate by way of institution is one who m must keep God's covenant. The covenant that God has made with the nation, wherein there are such lawful covenants established. Certainly, we would say that there was a lawful national covenant established between God and Israel at Mount Sinai, which the kings of Israel were bound to keep. And we read that the reason that God brought Assyria upon Israel, the northern kingdom, and led them into captivity is because they broke God's covenant. The reason likewise, it says in God's word, that he brought judgment upon Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, and led them into Babylonian captivity was because they broke God's covenant. <clears throat> The second means by which one becomes a lawful civil magistrate, the first was institution, must meet the qualifications. The second is by way of constitution. For he must secure the consent of the people by way of a lawful covenant between himself and the people. A lawful ruler cannot be imposed upon the people by violence or by force but only by a lawful accession to power in order to rule on behalf of the people and for their good. Again, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 15, there we see that God says to the people of Israel, when thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Notice there how many times it, is, it, it says that this would be that the people would set the king over them. Not that the king would just impose himself upon them by violence, by the sword, by tyranny, 
but that they would set a king over them as a nation, as a people. And as we read through the various places, and just some examples in Judges 8.22, there it says the people made Gideon a judge over Israel. Judges 11.11, they made Jephthah, they came together and made Jephthah a judge over Israel. 1 Samuel 11.15, they made king, uh, Saul king over Israel. 1 Chronicles 12.38, they came together again in a convention of, of, of states and the rulers, the princes, the elders representing the people. They came together again and covenanted with David, entered into a covenant with David and made him king. Likewise with Joash in 2 Chronicles 23.3 and with Jehoahaz in 2 Chronicles 36.1. So this is not something that is just a, uh, a buried truth in the scriptures that a lawful magistrate becomes lawful by way of constitution he doesn't impose himself, but he comes by way of the people making him a king. The king do not make the people. The people make the king, as Rutherford has said in Lex Rex. Only such civil magistrates are the ordinance of God and minister of God to thee for good, to whom we must submit out of godly fear and out of conscience. What then, having looked at what a, a lawful magistrate is, what then is an unlawful magistrate? What is a tyrant, in other words? Well, he is one then that is not a minister of God to thee for good. He is the opposite. Whereas a lawful magistrate is one who is a minister of God to thee for good, a tyrant is not a minister of God to thee for good. He's not God's minister ruling according to God's moral law, but rather is one who flagrantly and habitually frames mischief by law that he establishes, according to Psalm 94.20. He is one who tramples underfoot the true religion and destroys the people of his nation. And disregards lawful covenants made with God and made with the people. Samuel Rutherford states in Lex Rex that, quote, A tyrant is he who habitually sinneth against the Catholic, that is the universal good of the subjects and state, and subverteth law. And that such a one ceases to be a lawful king. Page 119 of Lex Rex. One is also an unlawful civil magistrate or a tyrant if he accedes to power by violence, by force, or by fraud, rather than by the constitution, the will of the people, a covenant established with the people. We see in scripture that one may be a king de facto. That is, he is a king in being and is recognized and called a king regardless of how he came to power or regardless of how he rules. He has the title of a king. So he is a king, we would say, de facto. And yet, he may, though a king de facto, he may not be a king de jure. That is, he is not a lawful king because he has not come into power lawfully or does not rule lawfully. He is a king in one sense because he rules as a king. That is, he is a king as to being or as to essence, but he is not a king in another sense in that he is not a king as to well-being. Thus, when a civil government or civil magistrate is habitually guilty of breaking God's 
covenant, despising, trampling underfoot God's true religion, hating God's moral law. He disqualifies himself as being the ordinance of God to whom we owe subjection out of a fear of God. Thus, a, a civil government or a civil magistrate is not the ordinance of God or the minister of God to thee for good simply because it or he is in power and sits as a ruler within a kingdom by way of God's providence. Whoever sits in a place of authority simply because God has ordained that he sit there in his providence, which decrees all things that come to pass, that which is lawful as well as that which is unlawful, that which is according to his word as well as that which is not according to his word, simply because he sits in a place of authority does not mean that he lawfully sits there according to God's moral law. You see, God by his providential will even set, sets tyrants in places of rule as he did Absalom who was placed in for a very short time, but was placed in a seat of authority and power upon David's throne, where as David fled for his life from the throne and from Jerusalem, as we see in Second Samuel chapter 15, verses 9 and verses 34 through 35, where Absalom is called king. King in what sense? Well, certainly not lawful king. He usurped by way of tyranny, that rightful, lawful place that David held. So he was a king by way of God's providence, but not a, by way of God's precept. He was a king de facto, but not de jure. Or perhaps, again, there are many examples, but again, think of Athaliah, who murdered all the royal seed, thought she had. One she did not, that was Joash. But she murdered all the royal seed, and because she murdered all the royal seed, acceded to the throne. Well, she was a ruler, a queen de facto, but not lawfully a queen. Because you don't seize the throne in that manner. That's not, there's, by way of an unlawful constitution, you don't simply impose yourself upon the throne and thereby become a lawful ruler. She was a tyrant. She was a usurper and was not to be honored as a lawful ruler. If any ruler that comes to power simply because he or she comes to power is uh, thereby a lawful ruler, then Hitler and Lenin and Stalin and Nero and, and even Satan himself who is called the prince and power of the air, are all lawful rulers because they hold the power to rule. That is why it is absolutely essential that we understand that God establishes in his word what institutes and constitutes a lawful ruler to whom we must submit out of fear to God and who is a minister of God to thee for good. And one who does not conform to that standard is indicted as a tyrant, an unlawful ruler. Well, we now come to consider whether King Zedekiah meets the biblical and moral criteria of being a lawful civil magistrate. First, let's consider whether he meets the criteria as to institution, and then we'll look at whether he meets the criteria as to constitution. First, as to institution, was he qualified as one who feared God and kept covenant with the Lord, or was he rather one who habitually, flagrantly ruled as a covenant breaker, having broken the national covenant God made with his people Israel? Let's consider a few passages of Scripture that describe the rule 
of Zedekiah. <clears throat> God inscribes upon Zedekiah's rule that which was said of all the covenant-breaking kings of Judah in 2 Kings 24:19, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. But God even further qualifies these words implying the habitual nature of his covenant-breaking by saying, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. According to all that Jehoiakim had done. You see, Jehoiakim was the brother of Zedekiah. Both of them were the sons of righteous, good King Josiah. From this righteous king who wrought great reformation within Judah. And promoted that reformation and renewed covenant with the Lord. From that righteous king came these wicked sons, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And it is said that Zedekiah was like his brother, Jehoiakim. So, one way of seeing what kind of a ruler Zedekiah was, is to see what kind of a ruler Jehoiakim was, because he was like Jehoiakim. We find in the scripture Jehoiakim was notorious for his habitual covenant-breaking and for the habitual evil that he perpetrated and committed in many, many ways. In 2 Kings 23:37, we read concerning Jehoiakim. <clears throat> and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. One of the fathers that's mentioned in chapter 24, the next, uh, just a few verses down in chapter 24, one of the fathers it refers to is Manasseh. You remember we talked about the wickedness of Manasseh. How he introduced so many uh, uh, heathen religions into um, into Judah, how he slaughtered people, how he offered introduced offering ch- uh, children his children to uh, these false gods, uh, burning them uh, by way of sacrifice uh, under these false gods. How it also speaks of him shedding much blood throughout uh, Judah. Uh, this was Jehoiakim, uh, whom we find this. It uh, speaks of the abominations. The word abominations uh, is, is a very key word. Whenever you find abominations, that takes you back to the practices of the heathens, whom Israel dispossessed from the land of Canaan, the Can- Canaanites, basically. He introduced abominations like the Canaanites into Judah. And therefore, because of all that Jehoiakim did, he received a very special, unique type of judgment. It says in Jeremiah 22, verses 18 through 19, Jeremiah, speaking by way of God's, as God's prophet, says concerning Jehoiakim, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. He would not even be buried. He would he'd just be thrown out. His carcass would rot in the sun like a, a, a mule, a donkey, an ass that's just cast out uh, to, for the carcass to dry up. This was how despicable, how hated this particular man was, a covenant breaker. And this is the Zedekiah is said to be like Jehoiakim. <clears throat> we read concerning the reign of Zedekiah now, looking more uh, clearly at Zedekiah 
in Jeremiah chapter 24, we read this. Zedekiah, in his reign, he was, again, so uh, gross, so wicked, so evil in his reign, he's compared to rotten figs. It says in Jeremiah 24, 8 through 10, And as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely this thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from all the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. That's Zedekiah. He is so evil that the Lord says, surely concerning him that it cannot be eaten like these uh, rotten uh, figs. That is how wicked and evil Zedekiah was. The Lord says, Concerning uh, Zedekiah in Jeremiah 28, verses 8 through 9, that he delivers them into the hands of the Babylonians explicitly for their covenant breaking. Notice again what it says, 22, verses uh, 8 through 9. And many nations shall pass by the city, and they shall say, Every man to his neighbor. Wherefore hath the Lord done this unto this great city? Then they shall answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Is it not abundantly clear that Zedekiah was disqualified from being a lawful magistrate by his gross and habitual covenant breaking? Zedekiah was de facto the king of Judah because in God's providence he ruled as king. But clearly he was not a lawful king for he flagrantly and habitually subverted God's national covenant with Israel. Zedekiah was a king in being but clearly was not a king in well-being. Now secondly, Zedekiah was not as we have said, he was not a lawful ruler by way of institution, but secondly, he was not a, a lawful ruler by way of constitution either. For he was not constituted king by the people's consent, but rather was constituted king by the raw power, bloody sword of the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He was not made king by the people. He was made king by a wicked, heathen, pagan tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar. We notice this in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 17, where it says, And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, his father's brother, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. He made him king. In other words, verse 17 says. And he changed his name as well, which was an indication that he was the one making him king because he changed his name from this to that. So Zedekiah owed, in effect, Nebuchadnezzar that particular uh, act of having made him king. Not the people, but... Nebuchadnezzar. We find in Jeremiah 37.1, likewise, these words. And King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom 
Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. Made king. Even within our own text, in Ezekiel 17, it makes it very clear that this was the case as well. Uh, we had read earlier that it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar that designated in verse 16, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth, that's Nebuchadnezzar, that made him king, that made Zedekiah king. He did not, therefore, have the consent of the people to rule over them. They took what they considered, who they considered, and whom they had recognized as a king. Uh, Coniah uh, was taken to uh, into Babylonian captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah the king in his place. <clears throat> this is, uh, again, especially, I think, uh, noteworthy because we find in 2 Kings 2 Kings 23.30 the fact that <clears throat> Jehoahaz who was uh, the king that immediately preceded Josiah was uh, Josiah's son, and, and uh, he immediately was the the very next king to to come from uh, to succeed Josiah. It says concerning jo Jehoahaz, uh, this is again Second Kings twenty three thirty one. Jehoahaz was twenty and three years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in uh, in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was. Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. But notice in verse uh, 30, uh, just the previous verse, and the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. Clearly, by way of constitution anyway, Jehoahaz was constituted king by way of the consent of the people. They entered into a covenant with him and made him king. Whereas that is not said concerning Zedekiah. To the contrary, it says that the king of Babylon, the tyrant, made him king. <clears throat> Thus, not only was Zedekiah disqualified from being a lawful king because of his gross and serious covenant breaking, but also because he did not have a lawful entry into office, but rather was made a king by a violent heathen tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar. But someone may ask, is not Zedekiah called the king of Judah? Yes, he is. But that does not mean that he holds the office, uh, the office lawfully. The false prophets of Israel are called prophets in Isaiah 29.10 and Jeremiah 14.15 and the priests of Israel that had become polluted and corrupted are called priests in 1 Kings 12.31-33. These are the, the priests uh, that Jeroboam instituted uh, not according to God's law not from the tribe of Levi but according to his own choosing and yet they're called priests. And as I said Satan is called the priests the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. Uh, does that mean he's lawfully a prince? He rules lawfully. But these titles are not used for their lawfully holding these offices, but simply for their holding these offices in God's providence. In other words, they are de facto, de facto kings, but not kings by law, not kings lawfully. They sure. But someone may also say, isn't Nebuchadnezzar called the servant of the Lord? Yes, actually he is called uh, the servant of the Lord. But he was the servant of the Lord in that he was appointed in God's providence to be God's scourge to judge Israel for her gross and habitual covenant breaking. 
He was the servant of the Lord like a plague serves the purposes of the Lord in God's providence. The sword and pestilence and famine were all God's servants in judging his people. Both Judah and Israel, according to Leviticus 26.25. God sends them as his scourge. The sword, plagues, pestilence, famine, he sends them as his scourge. They, are, they do his bidding. They judge his people. So did Nebuchadnezzar. And we find that God actually holds Nebuchadnezzar responsible, guilty for his tyranny over the people of Judah. For his cruel treatment of them, for his tyranny in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 17 through 18. Notice what it says concerning this cruel tyrant. Jeremiah 50, verses 17 and 18. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria hath devoured him. And last this Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of of Assyria. Well, now that we see from Scripture itself that Zedekiah was not a lawful civil magistrate, but was rather a tyrant who ruled contrary to the national covenant established by God with Israel at Mount Sinai, we seek to know whether he could, in that unlawful state, transact lawful covenants or agreements to which God held him bound. Let's briefly consider again Ezekiel chapter 17. And I will read just verses 16 through 19. Ezekiel 17 verses 16 through 19. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth that made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he break, even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when lo, he had given his hand, and hath done all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, As I live, surely mine oath, that he hath despised my covenant that he hath broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. <clears throat> Note that God holds Zedekiah who was appointed to be king by the king of Babylon, as we see in verse 16 of this chapter, he holds him to be a covenant breaker because he did not keep the oath, he did not keep the covenant that he made with the king of Babylon, but rather went to Egypt, contrary to his covenant, to seek alliance and help with Egypt rather than submitting himself to, as according to his oath, submitting himself to Nebuchadnezzar. He broke his covenant. He broke his contract. He broke his promise that he had made with this heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar. This truth will speak directly to an objection that is raised against the royal charters established by unlawful kings of Britain with the colonies when we consider this more fully in the near future, God willing, when we focus our attention upon the Solemn League and Covenant. For as covenanters, we can declare Charles II, James II, and all subsequent kings and queens of Great Britain to be unlawful 
according to God's law and God's covenant. That is the solemn league and covenant that binds them. But also, we can at the same time recognize they sit as rulers de facto upon the throne of Britain and that those charters and agreements that are lawful in themselves and do not violate the Solemn League and Covenant that were made with the colonies in North America and elsewhere are binding upon the moral person of the British crown and British colonies. For there is a being to the British crown, even if there is not a well-being to the British crown, when it subverts its lawful constitution and fundamental laws as articulated in the Solemn League and Covenant. Dear ones, the covenant, to come to the close today's sermon, the covenant-breaking tyrant may not be one to whom we can submit for conscience sake as God's minister to us for good, as lawful civil government should be, and as a lawful civil magistrate should be. But we as covenanters do not maintain that all civil government ceases to exist or that the magistrates simply cease to exist because they break covenants, because they do not follow God's moral laws, and that they cannot enter into civil transactions to which God will hold them bound if they are agreeable, again, to God's law. Dear ones, such a perverted view would lead us to the conclusion that what a tyrant does while he is in power, has no moral or civil bearing upon a nation at all because he does not exist. He simply ceases to exist if he becomes a covenant breaker. In other words, such a perverted view would lead us to conclude that if we really want to avoid all responsibility for our actions and to make null and void all agreements, covenants, and contracts, that we do not like, all we have to do is become a tyrant. All we have to do is become a covenant breaker in our family or business or our church or our nation. And then all promises, all covenants cease to exist because we're a covenant breaker, we're a tyrant. <coughs> However, even covenant breaking nations and their civil governments continue to exist as a moral person. It may be as a wicked moral person. It may be as an unlawful moral person, but they continue to exist as a moral person. And that is why they receive the righteous judgment of God upon them. If a nation simply ceased to exist civilly when it became a covenant-breaking nation, no further punishment upon it could be brought by God. For how can you punish something that does not exist? As covenanters, we abhor even the thought of such a view. And our con convictions about the unlawful rule of tyrants who habitually break covenant with God and with the people does not drive us to embrace such an absurd and wicked view, as we shall see from God's word, as we have done, uh, God willing, and demonstrated from God's word today, such a wicked view, dear ones, would lead us to sin all the more and to break God's covenants and agreements all the more if we, for one second, believed that we cease to be a moral person before God as individuals because we're covenant breakers. We don't cease to be a moral person before God as individuals, as a family, as a church, or as a nation simply because we're covenant breakers. The moral person continues. It may be, as I said, a wicked moral person that is practiced. And it may be a de facto civil government that is in power rather than a, go a civil government that is uh, according to God's law 
but it does continue as to its moral person, and it can and is responsible for various agreements into which it enters even subsequently and only compounds if those agreements are lawful according to God's word, they are agreeable to God's word, only compounds further sins by breaking those covenants or those agreements as we see in the case of King Zedekiah. Thus, covenanters, dear ones, are not upon any horns of a dilemma in maintaining that a king is a tyrant and yet his charters that he makes are lawful and are binding agreements between the king and those dominions over which he rules, over which he rules de facto because he's the pla- he holds that place of, uh, of being a king. There is no contradiction There is no dilemma. This is perfectly consistent with God's holy word. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before Thee and do thank Thee for the clarity of thy word as it speaks to so many different issues and the principles of it that we can draw so as to apply them into our individual lives, our our family, our church, and uh, our nation. And Father, we uh, thank thee that, Lord, thou hast not released us as a people within this nation or as a church from those covenants which our forefathers have engaged themselves in and engaged us as their posterity in. Regardless of whether all people renounce those faithful covenants, those covenants are perpetual upon the moral person, upon, Lord, uh, the, uh, the government of those nations, whether they are wicked, whether they are righteous, whether they serve thee, and are a minister of God to the, to, to the people for good, or whether they are not. Lord, they are bound, and they, Lord, owe thee uh, that honor and that uh, obedience. We pray, Father, that thou would help us, therefore, to, to not look upon uh, agreements, and contracts, promises, covenants with others as being bound, as as depending merely upon uh, our faithfulness or lack thereof, especially, O Lord, agreements uh, that uh, involve Thee, that we would honor all agreements, uh, even with the heathen and Uh, even with uh, those who do not know Thee, that, Lord, our word would be our bond, uh, and that, Father, we would swear to our own hurt. We ask, Lord, these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5.
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.